And we are here at the bottom of the hour with Shamai Siskind, who has brought to Middle East Quarterly, the quarterly publication of the Middle East Forum, a fascinating article on Israel and the great powers, Israel's Cold War role. Shammai served in the Israel Defense Forces. Hi, guys. Forces How you doing? Thanks so much for having quarter. me on. Now, of course, Shammai. Let's uh, we'll tell you we'll tell our audience who you are, and, and then we'll get right on to the uh, right on to the questions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Shammai served in the Israel Defense Forces Combat Engineer Corps with both activity in ground battalions and its intelligence stations, including the Judea and Samaria Divisional Headquarters. And since 2012, he has worked as a security and strategic consultant, supporting governmental and private industry clients. Shammai, welcome to the program. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much for having me on. So I wanted to start off with an excerpt from this article that you wrote for MEQ. Anti-Zionist sentiment had been brewing within the Soviet leadership well before the emergence of Israel. Vladimir Lenin himself allegedly saw the Zionist project as a form of bourgeois colonialism. By the early 1950s, however, having realized that Israel would not become a Soviet-type socialist state and recognizing the Arab state's far greater geostrategic, geopolitical, and economic importance, Moscow took an increasingly anti-Israel line. Soviet support for the Arabs moved from the diplomatic to the material in 1955 when Moscow signed a large-scale arms deal with Egypt via Czechoslovakia that included heavy weapons platforms. But only eight years before that, the Soviet Union had cast a crucial vote in favor of the creation of a Jewish state. What happened between 1947 and 1955 that led the Soviets to becoming pro-Arab during the Cold War? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the really sweeping support that the Soviets had for for the for the Arabs um, uh, for most of their for most of their existence until uh, until they capitulated in the early 90s. Uh, it's really a shock that there was ever any support at all coming from the USSR um, uh, for Israel. And to answer your question directly, um, I think that the that the uh, it's clear that the that the that the dreams of the Soviet leadership that Israel was going to be uh, um, some type of a uh, communist satellite in the Middle East, um, which is what the Soviets really wanted um, uh, since their since their creation to be able to have a foothold in the Middle East, which is something that we're seeing today uh, in places like Syria, for instance. Um, that dream of having that manifest with Israel quickly dissipated as they saw that they were much more inclined to, uh, to align themselves with Western powers as they were to, uh, to, um, to ally with, uh, with more, with more socialist and, uh, communist oriented regimes. That was really it. It really, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take that long for that dream to dissipate when they saw that Israel was, uh, was really not interested in being the, uh, the Middle Eastern USSR. So, the Soviet Union gravitates towards the Arab League, towards Arab despotic regimes, and Israel in 1956 is actually on the receiving end of both American and Soviet intervention after the Sinai campaign, where it finds itself in a war against Egypt with actually British and French allies on one hand. But then five years later, after the Sinai campaign takes place, we see that Israel, after the Eisenhower administration ended, starts getting closer to the United States with um, President Kennedy. Can you tell us about how Washington and Jerusalem got close to one another? 
Right. I think I think that the main motivation, um, as you can see from the historical evidence, the, the main motivation for uh, um, for the U.S. to get closer to Israel from a strategic perspective was uh, seeing seeing Soviet mischief in the region. Uh, they saw that there was a tremendous amount of Soviet money and weapons being poured into uh, being poured into Arab nations. As um, as you just as you just highlighted from that section of the article, um, this wasn't uh, you know small arms and shoulder weapons. These were major major weapons platforms like uh, tanks and uh, and uh, and fighters. So from a strategic perspective, whether or not there was any you know public sentiment that uh, leaned towards Israel at that time, which there was, it was certainly starting to build in the United States at that time. But from a purely strategic perspective, um, uh, things were things were already getting hot in the Eisenhower um, uh, uh, era. Um, towards the end of the Eisenhower presidency, there was the, you know, the incident of Gary Powers being uh, shot down in his YouTube spy plane, uh, which, which is really a major milestone. Got the Khrushchev very, very angry at the United States. Got, got them much more aggressive. Uh, the plans to deploy, uh, missiles to Cuba was already, was already doing, um, ruling at that time. So from a, so again, from a strategic perspective, it was really in the interest of the United States to have, uh, to have a strategic ally there. That can uh, that can be a bulwark against uh, against what the Soviets are trying to do in the region. So beyond just technological cooperation on intelligence efforts in the region, we also have a story that begin the article off about how Israel was able to obtain Nikita Khrushchev's famous secret speech where he condemned Stalinism. Can you tell us about how they got to that? How it got to the U.S. and what that did for the yeah. U.S.'s relationship? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the story of uh, of uh, the secret speech. I mean, uh, this is this is really something that uh, even the creative minds in Hollywood probably couldn't have uh, thought thought something like this up. Uh, the impetus for the whole for the whole story was really an accident. I mean, we're talking about um, we're talking about a uh, Polish Jew who had just uh, recently immigrated to Israel. Um, Victor Grajewski, his name. Uh, he happened to be um, um, in the building of the Polish Communist Party. Uh, at the time that this uh, highly, highly classified document was being distributed uh, after Khrushchev made his speech, uh, he ordered um, um, a very specific numbers of copies to be distributed. And again, just to clarify for the readers what speech we're talking about, uh, when Khrushchev came to power, one of the uh, goals that he had was to really open up a new lease and solidify himself with this image as, uh, as the new leader, uh, perhaps even a little bit more progressive um, and the point of this speech, which lasted something like four hours, it was really uh, it was really an incredible delivery. The purpose of this speech was basically to demonize Stalin and to cast uh, the whole era of his uh, of his leadership in a negative light. Um, he spoke for a long time. He laid it all out. He talked about the secrets of uh, of the Gulag prison system, um, the um, the hundreds of thousands that uh, Stalin had personally ordered to be killed and tortured, um, and uh, and then he proceeded to. Uh, Deliver uh, copies of that speech to um, to various Communist Party headquarters throughout uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, again, highly, highly classified information. There was a very specific number of copies delivered, uh, and it happened to be that this uh, this Polish Jew, Granowski, who was on a visit back to uh, back to Poland, happened to be in the building at the time to visit his girlfriend who worked in the building. And again, he just happened to see the copy. It, uh, it uh, said, you know, top top secret on it. Uh, in Polish, which he could read, obviously. And uh, he asked if he could just, you know, take the copy home for a little bit and uh, and cruise through it. And uh, his girlfriend didn't think two things about it, uh, allowed him to take it home. And uh, upon which Grajewski immediately made contact with his, uh, with his, uh, with his Israeli friend, 
uh, who had who had just uh, just a year before had given him assistance uh, with uh, immigrating from Eastern Europe to Israel. We already had those contacts. So again, the stage for this whole thing to actually transpire was really just a series of you know really freak accidents. Um, the fact that it happened, but um, the fact that it did actually come through was a was a was a was a major major milestone. As I tried to lay out in the article, uh, it was a really big milestone in the whole Cold War era. Um, it led, first of all, to a major de delegitimization of uh, of the Soviet regime. Uh, in the Western world, um, the, the factions that were still holding on to communism as an ideal in the West, even in the United States, um, this was, this was really undermined when all this came to light, when the horrors of the Stalin era came to light. Uh, it was also a cause for the, uh, for the, uh, fallout between the Soviets, uh, and China, because when it came to light that, uh, that, uh, Khrushchev was trying to be a bit of a progressive, so the uh, Chinese thought that, uh, that they were no longer really, uh, really supporting the communist cause in an authentic way. This had major, major geopolitical uh, um, consequences that were felt for you know years, if not decades, afterwards. So that seemed like a happenstance operation where you know sometimes you have to take advantage of people's greatest mistakes, right? You get the greatest advantage from someone's mishap, but oh, only correct. seven, yeah, for sure. but, but only seven years later there was a much more methodical operation, as you write, that was launched in what you call a Hollywood word, the saga of Mifza Yahalom, or Operation Diamond. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, so as I was trying to point out in the article, as, and as you just said, there was really a progression of, uh, of, uh, Israel's, of Israel's intelligence cooperation in the Cold War context. That, 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 first, uh, that first incident that the, with the secret speech, as you said, it was really just a series of accidents. It was really taking advantage of, uh, of a, uh, major, major mishandling of classified information. And, um, and the fact that the Israelis were able to, uh, capitalize on that was great. But then as time progressed, so they realized that if they wanted to be, if they wanted to play a productive role, uh, and support the, uh, Western effort against, uh, against the Soviets, they would have to get a little bit more serious, have to plan things out a little bit more. Um, so, so Operation Diamond was, uh, was really another, uh, major, major milestone in, uh, in the ability for, uh, Israel to give over uh, operationally significant intelligence. Um, MiG-21, uh, fighter plane was a, uh, was a substantial leap forward. You could even say a quantum leap forward, um, uh, in fighter, in fighter technology. It had a lot of, uh, had a lot of major advantages over, over the current generation of, uh, of, uh, fighter planes, specifically with its speed. Um, and, uh, even with that, even with all the things that were known about us in terms of its advantages over, over, uh, Western model fighters, there was a lot that was unknown. In fact, most was unknown. Uh, and U.S. planners, uh, planners in Western Europe, um, the military planners that were, they were very, very desperate to get as much information about the Big 21 as possible. But, uh, the Soviet machine had uh, successfully clamped down on any information. It was very, very difficult to get really any details about the MiG-21. Um, so Israel came across an opportunity to, um, if they if they put a little bit of effort into it, they could in fact get their hands on on a on MiG-21. Um, they were able to make contact with a uh, with a with a Christian Iraqi pilot by the name of Redfa Munir Redfa, who became disillusioned. Um, he became disillusioned with the uh, with his government uh, with his government policy, uh, 
because he was Christian and because he was uh, because he uh, felt felt the uh, felt the brunt of the uh, of the anti-Christian bias in in Iraq at the time, uh, and he decided that he was going to uh, defect essentially, uh, and he was just looking for an opportunity. So Mossad agents that were deployed uh, in Iraq at the time uh, caught wind of the fact that there was this Christian pilot who was who was looking to uh, you know was looking to get out of the country, uh, and anyone that could make him uh, a good offer, he was ready to take it. Um, Mossad agents made contact with him, essentially offered him, uh, we'll give you whatever you want, we'll get your family out of the country, um, uh, on condition that you figure out how to get your MiG-21 to us. Uh, and uh, Rachel agreed. He essentially agreed. And it was, uh, make a, to make a long series of, uh, of events short, he basically uh, got into his MiG-21 one night uh, on an unauthorized flight and uh, flew right of Iraq, right outside of Iraq into Israel. Um, it was a bit of a risk on his part, obviously, because, you know, he was flying into a uh, hostile country. At that time, Iraq was officially at war with Israel still. Um, but there was uh, coordination, obviously, with the Israeli Air Force not to, uh, not to scramble pilots or not to shoot him down or anything like that. And, uh, and he landed in Israel. And that was basically it. Uh, the, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, now had a real live MiG-21 in their possession. Um, they obviously did a lot of work on, uh, on doing their own uh, technical technical readout of the of the of the fighter. They did a lot of uh, practicing with it with their own pilots, uh, and then they eventually delivered it to the United States. They did their own uh, own evaluation program, which uh, which in fact took years. It was one of the earliest uh, it was one of the earliest programs to take place in the MPS the infamous Area 51 in Nevada. Where they put so that, the, that's uh, what goes on there, the U.S.-Israeli uh, defense cooperation. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on there. They put, <laughs> uh, the Area 51 is a pretty is a pretty wide area, but yeah, if something weird is going to go down, it's probably where it's going to happen, Area 51. So how is this significant in terms of the technology understandings of the MiG-21 program, both for the United States and Israel? And what did it help do for U.S.-Israel defense cooperation? Right. So this, so this, I would, I would argue, and um, I think we, I think I touched a little bit on this in the article. I would argue that this was uh, really the first time that there was that there was substantial uh, defense cooperation on the technical level between Israel and the United States. Uh, at that time, there was obviously some, some logistical support, maybe a little bit of tra- of, a, of, a, of a transfer of supplies and some economic support. But in terms of actual cooperation on the technical level, uh, I think this was really. The first, the first time there was anything, there was anything uh, substantial going on, some, some form of cooperation of sharing information on technology, um, uh, sharing information on strategy that how to counter, that how to counter the measures of a common enemy. Um, in this case, how to, how to how to actually defend against the MiG twenty one and dogfights, how to defend how to defend against it from a uh, from a uh, from an anti aircraft perspective. Um, there's really a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, technical information that was uh, that was withdrawn from this. In fact, the United States made a whole program um, just just devoted to uh, extracting technical information from this. It was called the Have Donut Program. I think I have I think I highlighted that in the article as well. Um, but yeah, it was everything really from radar, from how to detect these things with radar, like how to outmaneuver it uh, by American pilots uh, if they if they were to get into a dogfight with them uh, with the MiG 21s. Um, and and also how to how to best uh, fit the Western models like the F four Phantom, for instance, how to how to best um, suit the Western models to uh, to be able to counter the new twenty one in there. Now it, it's one thing to convince a pilot 
uh, with a million dollars and protection for his family to fly across the border. I mean, if you look at the flying distance between Baghdad and Jerusalem, you're probably looking at like a 45-minute flight. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's very yeah, yeah. close to one another. And, and then if we go to the remote David or to the um, the other air bases that are in Israel, it's 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 a stone's throw away or, or MIGs throw away if we want to get more appropriate. But yeah. there, was another, there was another operation that took place in 1969, just six years after the seizure of the MiG-21, which required the Israeli forces to disassemble an entire Soviet weapon system and the planning to be able to get that. And then the sharing with Washington was arguably their greatest feat until that time. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so you're referring to the Rooster 53 operation, which was, uh, which was, which was another major, um, uh, I would say even a paradigm shift in how uh, Israel went about its, uh, its intelligence gathering. This is really the first example where you find that intelligence collection became, became a priority um, when Israeli boots were on the ground. So this was not like a separate, a separate intelligence operation like, uh, like we discussed with getting a secret speech or even getting the MiG-21, which these were specific targeted intelligence operations. What happened in Rooster 53 is that there was an ongoing ground conflict, which is usually called the War of Attrition. It was, uh, it was a three-year conflict that, uh, uh, ensued after the, after the 67 war, the six-day war. Um, so we're talking about a situation where there are boots on the ground, there is fighting going on person to person, and uh, integrated into that were intelligence priorities that, from a purely tactical perspective, were a major, major liability. And uh, listeners will understand what I mean in a second. <laughs> so basically, we're talking about a situation where um, where elite Israeli forces were on a raid uh, in a uh, northern base of the Egyptian military in an area called Ras Garib. Um, um, this raid was important because there was there was uh, Egyptian Egyptian radar stationed in Ras Garib. Specifically, uh, the P-12 Soviet radar model was one of the most advanced um, radar models in the world. Um, similar to the situation with the MiG-21, there was very little known really about the, about the full capabilities of the P-12, but it was known to be good. Like it was known to be certainly cutting edge. Um, so this raid that took place, um, essentially, the plan was to just take it out, just to take out that radar station so that it couldn't affect the flight of IAF uh, pilots, of, uh, of uh, pilots of the Israeli Air Force. But once the boots were on the ground, so to speak, once the, the paratroopers, Israeli paratroopers, hit Ras Garib, so they realized that they had on their hand, uh, similar to the MiG-21 situation, they had on their hand a fully operational P-12 Soviet radar platform. Um, the original plan was just to destroy it and get the hell out of there, so to speak. But uh, when they realized what they had in their possession, uh, they figured this was just an opportunity that they couldn't uh, that they couldn't give up. So they quickly, on the spot, um, figured how they could transport this massive, massive piece of hardware um, across the Egyptian border back into Israel. Um, and uh, they they just basically scrambled two two huge uh, Sarkovsky C C C H fifty threes. H-53s, correct, yeah, yeah, H-53 helicopters, uh, and they just dragged the things out of there. These are not, I mean, these are big helicopters, but they're certainly not designed to, you know, haul uh, 20, 20 ton platforms across the, across the desert. Um, and in fact, one is actually forced to uh, make an emergency landing on the way. But this was an operation 
that it was it was a spur of the moment uh, um, intelligence operation that took place in the context of a ground operation, uh, which just showed that the Israelis were now integrating uh, intelligence priorities even to things that they were doing uh, with their soldiers on the ground in mean, a regular ground war. Um, yeah, and now uh, intelligence had become uh, a major priority in uh, in all in all in all areas of conflict. And then only a, a few years later, they actually stole an SA-6 surface-to-air missile battery that they then shared, too, with the United States, according to what you write here. But those were all, I would argue, an ideological victory in terms of the intelligence with Khrushchev, a technological victory with the two systems, the P-12 and the MiG-21, but a strategic level of intelligence cooperation really started in the 1970s with exposing Soviet missile secrets. Tell us about that. Right. So it's important for the listeners to know that um, the single point, if you were to choose any one specific point about the strategic reality during during the, uh, the Cold War era, it would really be um, what what were the Soviet missile capabilities? Yeah, this was really a question that bothered um, basically, I would say, every president from, you know, from uh, from uh, from Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. I mean, everyone wanted to know the exact information about. What were the Soviet missile capabilities? How many did they have? How big were they? How far could they fly? This was, these were always the big questions, the most important questions. It wasn't so much how many tanks the, the Russians could put into Berlin, but it was really how many missiles could they put into New York. That's a bit. Um, but these were the big questions, and it was questions that were really, really difficult to end. Um, essentially, and, and there are a lot of holes in this story, as I tried to, as I tried to make clear in the article, uh, I don't think anyone today could give you like a really clear picture in terms of how this went down. But essentially, Israel came up with a plan that they were able to systematically um, extract, uh, albeit small pieces of information, um, but enough information that 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 in aggregate to give them give them an accurate picture of uh, of the Soviet missile capability. Um, that strategy was essentially to deploy a network of spies throughout Eastern Europe, targeting specifically the retired officers. Um, within within the Russian military, officers that had access during their careers to to the secret information, uh, and even though the, the information on the Soviet missiles was very compartmentalized, like for instance, there was you know one guy who knew about the engines, there was another guy who knew about the warheads, there was another guy who knew how the warheads and the missiles were connected. So these were very very sporadic pieces of information. But at the end of the day, by by tracking these people down, by targeting them. By slowly, slowly developing them as assets, they were able to extract these bits and pieces of information, which over the years they were able to make coherent intelligence reports about and get a very uh, accurate picture about what the uh, about what the Soviet capability was. This is a key factor, by the way, in um, the West at large, but the United States specifically coming to the conclusion later on. We're talking about like the early uh, the early 1980s, uh, mid 1980s, of coming to the conclusion that. That uh, they had way, way overestimated the Soviet missile capability, and that uh, the threat that they had perceived was was just way, way lower um, than they had actually been concerned about. Well, Shemai, this is fascinating information. What what drove you to write this article? Right. So I'll tell you the 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 thing that spurred me to write this. I actually went. Uh, I guess you could say I worked. I worked kind of backwards. Um, but, my focus professionally is actually looking at uh, is actually looking at the Middle East in its current state and what are the trends going on right now. 
not so much uh, 50 years ago in a, in a, in a largely forgotten uh, era of history. Um, perhaps forgotten at our peril, but it's certainly certainly not what's going on right now. And I was just noticing about how very often uh, the uh, the major actors that are at each other's throats uh, these days are often separated by uh, by uh, significant significant geographical areas. I mean, that was certainly the case in the Cold War, where the main actors were separated by an entire ocean. Uh, and then and then the proxies of those actors are often the ones that actually have to face off. And the main actors then have to look at what's going on with their proxies, how their proxies are facing off with each other in order to be able to know the capabilities of, of, of each other. So Israel plays a very, very unique role in that it's very often the first one to deploy these advanced weapon systems um, that are produced mainly in the United States or other places in Western Europe. Um, it really hit me one day when I uh, found out this was already two years ago, uh, that Israel was in fact the first, the first one to deploy, um, the F-35 in an actual combat scenario, right? We all hear about this, uh, hype in the military world that the F-35, the most advanced fighter in the world, uh, it was actually Israel in Syria, the first, the first to deploy, uh, this plane in a, uh, in an actual, uh, fighting scenario. And how uh, how appropriate now that the Russians are backing the Syrians, and there's already been needs to have deconfliction between Israel and, the, and not the Soviets anymore, but between the Putinites, between the Russians under Vladimir Putin and its new iteration. Shamai, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're, we've we're, we've run out of time here. But uh, oh. how can how can how can we follow your work really quick? Ten seconds. Yeah, so um, I mean, the best place for people to find me is uh, is uh, is on LinkedIn. I usually post all my work over there. People can follow me. All right, um, so let's follow Shemai Siskin on LinkedIn. You can find his article, Israel and the Great Powers, the Unsung Cold War Role at emmyforum.org. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning. Sam Westrop, Shemai Siskin, our guest, Marilyn Stern, our producer. We look forward to having everyone being healthy and safe and listening and tuning in next week on Wednesday here on Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM.